Welcome to Mexico Matters, the CSIS podcast about how events occurring in Mexico can impact and more importantly, matter in the United States. I am Mariana Campero, non-resident senior associate of the Americas program at CSIS and the former CEO of the Mexican Council on Foreign Relations, COMEXI. Nearshoring, a not very common word just five years ago, has become ubiquitous as the pandemic and the geopolitical events have incentivized companies from around the world to reduce their dependency on China as a single source of supply by adding diversity, resiliency, and moving production closer to home. To speak to me about how these new global trends have started to benefit Mexico and what could hinder its further integration into North America, that it is my pleasure to welcome Alejandra Palacios, former head of Mexico's Economic Competition Commission, COFESE, and Luis Gutierrez, the president for Latin America of Prologis, the world's largest industrial real estate investment trust and the biggest owner of industrial parks in Mexico. Welcome to Mexico Matters. A true pleasure to have you here with us. It is well known that the United States wants to decrease its imports from China. What it is less well known, however, is that from 2018 to 21, the proportion of manufactured goods imported have actually decreased by about 4% and that the rewards of this China decoupling have gone mostly to countries in Southeast Asia. In fact, Mexico participation in U.S. imports barely changed during those years. Having said that, last year, Mexico saw foreign direct investments reaching a record of about $40 billion. 36% of which went to the manufacturing sector, and the industrial parks in Mexico are at full capacity. Hannah, how do you interpret this? Is this the beginning of something larger? So, as you explained, Mariana, what we're seeing is an opportunity for wider trade integration with the North American region. In this context, companies that actually have production plants in China these days are wondering if it will be profitable to maintain their operations there to move to other Asian countries, as you've mentioned, or to move its operations to Mexico or Latin American countries. So what we're seeing, I think, are three things at the same time. One is significant increases in investments in industrial parks. Luis is an expert there, and I'm sure he'll have the numbers. We also are seeing some decisions already taken that will be seen when their investments materialize. They take time. And then also, what we also see and listen is a lot of conversations of investors pondering different factors before deciding without yet having made investments at this time. In a nutshell, I think this is the beginning of something larger. And Hannah, what are Mexico's competitive advantages, particularly when we compare it to countries, for example, in Asia or even in the region? Well, of course, location. I mean, we are right next to the largest market in the world. And then also, because of environmental issues, the cost of maintaining inter-oceanic supply chains is emerging as an important variable in relocation decisions. The commercial links and the know-how that we have developed over the last 30 years with Canada and the United States, I mean, the process of Mexico producing manufacturers for the U.S. has been happening for the last 30 years. The existence of the USMCA, 
the cost of Mexican market labor, which is lower than that in China, Mexico's relatively good level of human capital, and a relatively developed infrastructure. I say relatively, and then we can later talk more about that. So all these factors, Mariana, do put Mexico at the top of the list of those companies who are redirecting their investments. That said, how much will Mexico take advantage and benefit from this will depend on what our government does moving forward. And we'll also talk about that. Absolutely. Luis, as a global leader in logistics and the largest owner of industrial parks in Mexico, can you give us some color about the type of investments that are coming into our manufacturing sector? Is most of it going to already established industrial clusters, such as automobiles or aerospace, or are we also seeing investments in new industries? Well, thank you uh, very much, Mariana and Hannah. I'm happy to share this podcast. Let me back up a little bit and just tell you what I think it's uh, really happening and benefiting Mexico. And then, you know, I'll refer to your specific question. So I think, you know, there is a structural change, which is very fundamental. And this comes in cycles about 15, 20 years. So I think the last cycle was something that it was centralized manufacturing, which was mainly based in cheap labor, just in time and uh, focusing on reducing cost, right? So I think over this cycle, it has become more decentralized, more regional. Of course, you know, the way you consume, there is a huge change there, you know, e-commerce and the technology. You want your stuff, you know, the next day and you want it red and you want it your size and all of that has, you know, deep changes. So this uh, just-in-time to just-in-case manufacturing uh, sector is really coming into play. So I think there's two aspects that uh, really have made this change. One, of course, is what you were mentioning, the U.S.-China geopolitical tensions, which are making companies mainly come closer to the market. And the other one is uh, the pandemic, right? So the pandemic mainly shut down the economies and shut down a lot of industries. And those industries were not easy to open up. When they opened up, they didn't open up at a regular pace. So you had a lot of lack of inventories in the supply chain, creating a lot of bottlenecks. That's why we saw a lot of news on, you know, supply chain disruptions. So I think there's two sources on, you know, why. So number one is companies are redeciding their manufacturing at this time. And now uh, the drivers are labor shortages, which were created a lot from the pandemic. And of course, the attraction of companies trying to become closer to the market. And this is, you know, some companies coming from Asia to Mexico and to the United States, right? So what are the sectors that are benefiting? So, of course, you know, auto is one of them. One of the sectors that, you know, Mexico has been a key leader. And now what's happening is that uh, there is a conversion of those lines to electric vehicles, right? So then you have a, a boom, let's say in the Bajio area, but also in the north. You know, the north is mainly having suppliers that come from the south of Texas. Those companies mainly manufacturing in Mexico and same those products, you know, to the OEMs in the south of mainly Texas. You know, the other sector that is coming is electronics. I think it's a major winner. We've seen uh, very important growth 
there. You have the Taiwanese-China issue, and you know the Taiwanese need to diversify the supplies, right? So you've seen Guadalajara, Tijuana, and Ciudad Juarez as major winners of this trend, and you know chips and circuit boards, you know, go into many sectors. Uh, you know, they go into autos, they go into your radio, they go into your know, household, everything. So those companies are, you know, because you don't know what's going to happen with that tension you know, mainly beginning to diversify that, mainly to access the U.S. market. The other one, which is also medical devices, you know, it's an industry that has been mainly growing. And this is mainly because of the dependency out of uh, China. And that is also mainly concentrated in the North and in Monterey. So uh, white goods, consumer products, etc. I mean, there are several products. So is there any new sector there? I think it's the traditional, I would say that 70% of the demand comes from companies that are already producing here, established. And as Hannah said, we have 30 years of building clusters around the country. And I think those are the main Correct. beneficiaries of this uh, trend. But now I think with a much larger growth because of the change in the cycle. Luis, you mentioned China and the U.S.-China tensions. I read somewhere that most of the demand for industrial parks had been coming from China. Is it still the case today, or are there other countries like the U.S., for example, that are starting to gain some of the share? You know, nearshoring is a word that, you know, it's very difficult to see what's the meaning of it, right? So it's the things that come from Asia, of course, but there's also labor that comes from the United States, and it's, you know, things that companies expand their operations. And I don't know if that is considered nearshoring or not, but at least that is just additional demand for space and for labor and, you know, for goods. So in my mind, I consider that. So I think the main driver is mainly the labor. And we've seen some uh, relocations of companies that are looking for that. And then, of course, is, uh, you know, the Asia relocations. And I would say that, you know, it's not only uh, China, it's, you know, some of the other countries. We've seen Korean companies, we've seen Taiwanese companies, we've seen Japanese companies just trying to come closer to the market. I would say that the China and, you know, China, Beijing is increasing their investment in Mexico. I would say that the, uh, main market is Monterey. They have been building a huge park there that is mainly the anchor is Heisen. And there's just a lot of, you know, tier one, tier two, and tier three suppliers that are coming from China that are establishing in the north of Monterey. What do they focus on, Luis? Well, Heisen is an electronics company. So they produce you know, TVs and, you know, everything. Let's say they're a competitor of, of Samsung. I mean, that would Got probably it. put it uh, more clearly. Let me try to put this in perspective now and give some dimension about the size of the opportunity we're talking about. Despite the anti-investment, unmarket-friendly policies of President López Obrador, J.P. Morgan estimated that Mexico could increase its share in U.S. manufacturing imports from 14% last year to about 17 or 21%, which could mean anywhere from 80 to 170 billion in additional exports. I mean, this is big. Hannah, what specific short-term action must be taken by both the public and the private sectors to really take full advantage of this opportunity? This uh, North American manufacturing integration has been happening for years. 
And I think this is an unstoppable trend. So this integration that has been mainly led by the private sector will keep on. And as you mentioned, even in spite of our governments. So I think that at this moment, what is really important is that any individual internal policy decision that the AMLO government takes does not derail this integration trajectory. I mean, there's several short-term things that uh, need to be done, but the most important one is not to derail this integration trajectory. And what I mean by this, it's government self-regulation. For example, as a government, we can't systematically violate the USMCA. So apart from that, which I think it's important to stress about short-term actions, of course, we need legal certainty into which how and which companies can participate in different industries in Mexico, greater investments in rail transportation and its interconnection to the United States, energy infrastructure that needs to meet the environmental standards of our trading partners, also greater investments in coverage of 5G technologies, telecom, and then also investments in human capital, training the technicians and engineers that will manipulate the new emerging technologies. And there is also, Mariana, a rampant insecurity issue in certain parts of Mexico that needs to be dealt with. Although if you ask me and if you want me to be a little bit cynic, what is the most one, the most important short-term action? I would say that it has to do with the energy policy. Why? Because this is the first question that international companies ask when analyzing installment in our country. What we need is the energy infrastructure to meet their environmental standards. And I'm not just talking here about engaging, private sector engaging in the generation of clean energy, but also, and importantly, of the possibility of transmitting that clean energy that is produced or eventually will be produced in Mexico from where it is produced to the industrial areas. The state of the transmission grid in Mexico is grave. Luis has been telling us about Guadalajara, Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, Monterrey, etc., and the truth is that the lines, the transmission lines there in those all those places are congested. They're congested in the northern states of Mexico, in the Yucatan Peninsula, in the Bajío, and very soon in Monterrey. So, I mean, that would be like number one action in the short term. If my numbers are correct, there are more than 500 industrial parks in Mexico. Most of them, as you mentioned, are in the north and in the Bajío. Inventories are low. And most of the industrial parks are either sold or very close to full capacity. Tijuana has a waiting list of about 20 companies. What is not allowing you to grow faster? Hannah just mentioned energy, regulations, transport. What would be the number one constraint for you right now? So let me just put the growth into perspective. So I guess, you know, we operate in six markets which is Mexico City, Guadalajara, Monterrey, Tijuana, Ciudad Juarez, and Reynosa, which is probably, you know, the most important industrial markets in, in the country. And, you know, demand was around 16 million square feet of space in 2020, and demand doubled. In 2021, it uh, was 32 million square feet, and in 2022, it was around 36 million square feet. So then, I guess, the availability of land, there was not enough supply 
of let's say entitlement for infrastructure to to take care of that uh, higher demand today and uh, you're totally correct you know there is some demand that we cannot uh, meet expectations because you know the vacancy rate is around one percent in all of those six markets and you know there's markets like as you mentioned tijuana is at zero percent what is is mainly at 0.5 percent of course this is, has some effects in prices because land with with entitlements you know, it's just becoming more scarce and more uh, pricey. So we are growing. Uh, of course, the company is growing. We've had, you know, the best years of our history in 2021 and 2022. And we expect to have a, a pretty good year in 2023. And we could, you know, grow faster. What is limiting our growth? Uh, uh, mainly is because we cannot find land that has mainly the services, which uh, the main one is electric power. So I think our, you know, all of our clients, which is about, you know, 5 million square meters are connected to the grid and they have been having constant energy supply and that has not been an issue. The issue comes with the new clients that want to grow. And uh, certainly we have a capacity to grow. I think, uh, you know, in our six markets, we can think that in 2023, we'll probably have sort about the same space and probably, you know, supply will not keep up with the demand. So there is shortages there and we could grow faster, but, you know, there is a limitation there. We cannot invest in infrastructure, as Hannah was saying, there are limitations to the law as to private investment in uh, transmission and generation. The companies all have some net zero goals, you know, need to be met sometime in 2040. And we're expecting that eventually in the short term, you know, this policies would eventually change. I think if it's not with this administration, the new administration for sure has to eventually change. And I think that is somehow what, you know, a lot of the companies are coming, are thinking that they want that. I mean, there's also other issues related to entitlement that have to do with the pandemic closing. And then, you know, the agencies do not have the capacity to do all the paperwork to, you know, provide zoning and, you know, other infrastructure permits. But I would say the main issue is electric capacity. Luis, do you have an idea of how many industrial parks are currently under construction in Mexico? You know, our industry is a private industry and, you know, there is investors from, uh, you know, different natures. You know, we have big companies like ours, but we have local players. We have a lot of private funds and everybody is trying to build industrial parks. You know, industrial sector has been one of the preferred investment uh, criteria, not only in Mexico, but around the world, because, uh, you know, there has been a shortage and the need because of e-commerce and, you know, the warehouse is the the factory of e-commerce. So there has been an expansion of our sector that is, uh, you know, very, very wide. So I would say that, uh, you know, there is a lot of production of of industrial parks and it depends. I mean, as Hannah was saying, there is some cities that don't have the energy uh, infrastructure issue and there is some cities that have it, you know, Tijuana, Maybe one of them, uh, you know, the Bajio area, of course, you know, the Merida. And it's uh, more difficult in some cities than others. But I would say that, uh, you know, there is a lot of industrial parts under construction right now. Hannah, most of our manufacturing capacity, as we just mentioned, is established either in the north or the center of the country. Is there a business rationale, do you think, to be made? And if so, what must be done to incorporate the south of the country into this mix? 
Yes. So as I was saying at the beginning, Mariana, the advantages of Mexico with this nearshoring trend, apart from having the USMCA, are our proximity with the U.S., the commercial links we've developed over the last 30 years, the cost of labor, and the level of training of human capital, and the relative development of infrastructure. The thing is that the south of Mexico does not have these advantages. They're not present. They're more present in the center and the north. So if you want to bring the south to be part of this trend, we need to create those advantages. Without doubt, the AMLO government has put the south of the country on the public agenda, which is really important. It has also made investments in the region, the Dos Bocas refinery, the Mayan train, and specifically for the issue uh, we're talking about here, nearshoring, the Interoceanic Corridor Project. And AMLO speaks often about this project, no? the, the Interoceanic Corridor. And for those who are listening, this project basically consists in articulating a land corridor between the Pacific and the Atlantic, connecting the narrowest part of Mexico via train from the port of Salina Cruz in Oaxaca to the port of Veracruz in Coatzacoalcos. It would be another Panama Canal, basically. I mean, land Panama Canal. It wants to be a Panama Canal. I mean, and there's issue there. Normally, you take about 11 hours to cross the Panama Canal because of the infrastructure now in Salina Cruz and Coatzacoalcos, and you know how the rails are right now. That could take maybe 50 hours in Mexico. So, I mean, there's a lot of infrastructure to build there in order to make it competitive with the Panama Canal. But I mean, as a starting point, the idea is that this project will eventually become a full-on manufacturing and logistics center that could serve especially the East Coast of the United States. The truth is that um, significant private investments, and Luis can tell us uh, if parks will be built there, in my view, those investments will only come until the challenge of attracting skilled labor can be overcome. And also when the cities around these areas can offer the services need to track capital and talent. And apart from skilled labor, manufacturing that needs to be close to the U.S. border because it, it crosses and then comes back will only move to the south and really will only move to the south when there is sufficient energy, improved roads, maritime and railway infrastructure so that you can fluidly connect the south and the north of Mexico. I mean, all this is possible. It is possible, but it will also take time to build. And in order to do this, what we need is a coherent long-term regional industrial policy. That is the only way to get serious things done, and it takes time. The truth is that for now, what we have is some government investments in the area, as I was saying, the Interoceanic Corridor, and some of those investments are not productive investments, the Maya train and the Refineria Dos Bocas, and not much more than that. So, I mean, it can be done, but it's a long-term project, and it takes seriousness, patience, and a long-term strategy. Luis, Mexico's need to increase its investments in infrastructure are certainly well-documented. But from your perspective, where are our main infrastructure gaps? Are there in roads, ports, water treatment, customs? What do you need the most, of course, in addition to energy? I agree with Hannah's assessments on, you know, the things that are needed to boost this extraordinary time that, you know, we have now and, you know, we need to take advantage of it. 
So I think we already mentioned the first one that comes to mind is uh, certainly the uh, the access to energy. energy. So I guess, you know, if you put that aside, which that could be very easily done if you uh, mainly change regulation, because there is a lot of uh, private capital that, you know, is very interested into participating into the sector. So yeah, taking energy aside, what are your other needs for infrastructure? For trade facilitation, you, you mainly need the ports of entry to be uh, seamless. No? So you need to invest in ports with good infrastructure on both sides. You need to invest in you know custom facilities at the border. I think there is a, a pretty good agreement, but uh, you know you start working in free trading zones and things like that that could just expedite commerce. I think that would be uh, pretty good. You have to invest in airports. I think you know Mexico can become uh, the hub for uh, connection between the world and Latin America. You know very easily. Yeah. And also east and west. Do you see that, Luis? I mean, the opportunity is north and south. No, I mean, Miami is becoming, you know, Latin America hub, you know, in which I think uh, Mexico can become that. But, you know, eventually you could be a link to, to Europe and Asia through our, of those companies that want to go to South America. Mexico, I think, would be a great point. And then, I mean, the other thing that is uh, just, uh, you know, right there is just improvement of our roads, which they need a little bit of an upgrade. Because, you know, our roads are not that efficient. They need sometimes to be widened. And certainly a rail is the other one that, you know, just comes to mind. I think there is a private investment that, you know, wants to have those connections. Let me now change the conversation to another important subject, chips. We have already spoken about established industrial clusters, such as automobiles. Luis mentioned Mexico's potential to grow in other industries such as electronic, medical devices, white goods, etc. But we haven't really spoken about how the recent industrial policy of the United States might create a whole new supply chain. Hannah, as part of the CHIPS Act, Mexico was invited to join the United States and Canada in their push to shift the semiconductor supply chain from Asia to North America. As you probably know, Intel has a design center in Guadalajara where some validation and testing of chips already takes place. President López Obrador wants to be part of this. How do you think we can capitalize on this drive and what can Mexico do to add more value? So basically, it has to do with the transformation of the initial economic growth model that we had in the 90s when we decided to become an export platform. So back then, what we bet on was the development of manufacturing temporarily imported inputs through cheap labor and uh, mechanical intensive processes. As you mentioned, Mariana, in the semiconductor business, being as assemblers and testers. So this change in strategy, and I would call it more of a pivot than a change, is one, having local companies enter in as suppliers, substituting offshore suppliers, so many more companies can become part of the NAFTA loop. And then, of course, having our workers from cheap labor and mechanical capacity to designing and participating in more sophisticated manufacturing processes. I mean, how many Mexicans today can manipulate emerging technologies? If we want thousands of Mexicans to be capable of doing that, 
What we need is projects that the government works in partnership with academia and the business sector. The government can do it alone. You know, business sector will do it for itself. So if we want something big, it needs to be in a big partnership. And then also, like in the case of semiconductors, it's also with a partnership with the U.S. So answering your question, to increase our participation and add more value in this manufacturing trend. And I would say, Mariana, even more importantly, to make this integration a more equitable and sustainable development so that Mexicans can have higher wages. Again, we go back. We need a long-term government-led industrial policy with many of the actions we have been talking about along this conversation, including heavy investments in human capital skills. These are long-term projects, Mariana. The first integration wave took us 30 years. Let's see this as a new integration wave and smart long-term projects is what we need these days. Luis, unfortunately, we're coming at the end of this podcast, but I want to ask you the last question, and you mentioned that a little bit before. Despite all of Mexico's challenges, which are well-known, companies are in fact moving forward and coming to Mexico. There's not a week that passes in which we don't have a new announcement of a new manufacturing investment, right? BMW just announced an $800 billion. Tesla is in talks. What do you believe is the assessment of your clients when thinking about Mexico? They're playing the long term. Are they believing that the next administration will have to be much more pragmatic and really be capable of taking this opportunity? Well, that's a great question. And, you know, I, Loved when Alejandra said that, you know, in spite of all of these issues that, uh, that we have, you know, companies are still coming. So I think, you know, it's uh, the Mexico moment. And this is uh, because of things that we don't control, right? I mean, it's, it's a, a structural shift on, you know, where things are produced. And of course, we're taking advantage of this, you know, manufacturing hub that we have created over 30 years which is very valuable, right? And we have created a lot of clusters and, and we have created a lot of competencies and uh, skilled labor. And there's just a lot of companies that do business. Uh, you know, we are sometimes number one trading partner with the U.S., now trading places with uh, Canada. As I said, you know, most of the growth is coming from the companies that have done business with us and are our partners the last 30 years. And they you know, look at us as, you know, a, a good partner and they, you know, already know, you know, the good things and they know the bad things. I think, uh, you know, now they're seeing a lot of good things because, you know, I can say with a lot of pride that, you know, a lot of our clients that have sophisticated processes, I mean, some of them, you know, produce the tests for COVID, for example, and you would never think that that would be produced in Mexico, and it, it's produced in Mexico. And the engineers that are in our Monterey plant uh, of this company mainly train the foreign engineers of this company, and they mainly export, you know, the Mexican engineers that do that. I have seen a lot of companies that, you know, come a little afraid they do a pilot, and once they, you know, get to know the process and they feel comfortable. They, uh, you know, double or triple their uh, production capacity. And now when, you know, you have this uh, restriction issues, 
of uh, you know additional costs because uh, you know reshuffle of uh, supply chains, which has to do with you know inventories, uh, labor. Uh, you know, it's, it's a lot of things. Mexico is a pretty good option. So yes, I mean, uh, you know, the politics are there, uh, but you know, these companies do business, you know, around the world, and I think uh, you know they have their big boys, and, and they know that you know they can operate in this environment. I think uh, over the long term they have uh, confidence because you know these uh, manufacturing investments they're not for next year. I mean, these are for the next wave of fifteen, twenty years, as I said, and you know this is just very reconforting. I think. You know, this opportunity can be much bigger if we had, you know, industrial policy and a good plan. And, you know, we had, you know, the human training and all of that, uh, and, you know, the logistic infrastructure and all of that. But I think the C-suite is considering Mexico very, very seriously. And we are seeing that in the numbers. Anna, would you like to add anything to what Luis just said? I mean, we've talked about the structural shift and this integration and stoppable trend. So just stressing that really the most important governmental Mexican decision is not to anything in particular that derails this integration trajectory. With that, things will get better. Luis, Hannah, unfortunately, we have come to the end of this podcast, and I will close by stressing on the positives. It is no doubt Mexico's moment, and despite the politics, C-suites from around the world know that this shift in international trade will last for about 15 or 20 years. They do have long-term horizons. We will just have to wait and see how smart we actually are in transforming this opportunity into a real transformation that has the potential to include the south of the country and actually position Mexico as a real, true partner of North America. My name is Mariana Campero. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 